Good morning. We are studying this summer on the subject of heaven. Recently, I heard about a company that was selling messages to people in the afterlife. And you think, well, how would they do that? Well, the way the company did it was they would find somebody in a hospital who was terminally ill. They knew they were going to pass away and they would pay money for this person to take a message with them into the afterlife when they passed away. Now, the caveat was, you know, the writing in the bottom, you know, was we cannot confirm if these messages actually get through because nobody knows exactly what happens. But just in case, you could try. Now, see, as we've gone through this study, there's a lot of questions that come up about what the future will be like. And we've answered some of them. The first sermon we did was that God's Word is the foundation for teaching us about the future. That's what we're going to build on. We learned about what the heavenly city will be like when we get there. We learned about what, what we're going to do. Are we going to be bored in heaven? We talked about that. We, we talked about what our bodies will be like. Um, and today I want to answer a question that's been coming up. Because I've deferred some of the, I know we got a sermon coming up and, and a, a better answer will be given. But today, we're going to talk about um, what happens in between when we die and all the stuff you've been talking about. Because I want to share this verse with you. Um, it comes out of uh, 2 Corinthians 5. It says, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And this is a common verse I hear people say. You, you may have heard it before. To be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. That kind of answers the question. When we die, the body goes into the ground. We cover it up with dirt. But that's not the real you. The real you goes on. And we talked about there will come a day when that body, the same body that goes into the earth, it will be resurrected just like Christ's body was, made alive. It will come out of that earth and we will live for eternity. But, but see, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So I, I think about my uh, mother-in-law who passed away, which I shared a few weeks ago this summer. The body goes here, so is she with the Lord now there? But the question is, what does she look like? Because when Pastor Kevin, when we did the sermon on our resurrected body, what will our eternal bodies be like? We said, is it going to be a ghost? Is it going to be spirit? Is it going to be an angel? And we answered those questions, right? We said, no. In eternity, what will we, what will we be like? We, it will be the same body. But then we talked about how it will be perfected. It be made imperishable and all these things. But if that body's there and you're saying they're with the Lord, what, is, what do they look like? Ah, that's a good question. That's what we're going to get at today. We're going to talk about, we're going to answer this one piece that people have been asking. Now, I have called this message the in-between part one. I'm going to give two, two sermons on this. There's an in-between now and then everything you're talking about, eternal city, etern eternity, our eternal work, our eternal body. And so there's a couple things I want to get at in these messages. 
So we're going to go to a passage in Luke 16, and we're going to use that as a place to answer this question today. And you can follow along with me. Luke 16, I'm just going to read the first part of it. It said, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And I'm going to stop right there. We'll continue on with their story, but I want to point something out because this is the, the big uh, idea for this message I want you to grab onto today. I'm going to use a picture to show, show you what I'm getting at. This is the Grand Canyon. I'm going to take a word from this story. I haven't read it yet. And the word is chasm. And the chasm is what I want you to, to grasp today because I am going to highlight the chasm that exists between the two men in this story. Now, when you look at this, you can see there's a great big gulf, a distance between two points. You've got the cliff line over there, and then over here, you can see part of that. It's possible like you could be standing on this and then look across at someone on that side, and that is going to give you a picture of this story that we're going to get today. But chasm means big distance, a big gulf, a space. I'm going to use that word to teach today, and the first point is a great chasm of difference. It's not just distance, but you're going to see these two men, there's a great difference between their experiences as people, both in their life, in their death, and in eternity. And we're going to look at the first one right now, the chasm of difference in their life between these two, and I'm just going to pull out the words that we just read through that passage. We look at the rich man. What did it say about him? The rich man was covered in fine clothes. He's dressed in purple. Purple would be um, expensive. It signifies high-end. This was a man who shopped at the, at the ritzy stores. At the, at the, he wasn't at the uh, dollar store. He was shopping at the fancy mall, if I can uh, bridge that to modern-day uh, idea, right? He had nice clothing. Not only was he covered in fine linen, linen, linens and clothes, but we see how well that he ate. He's, it uses the word sumptuous. He ate sumptuously. Now, this is a word that means you've got a lot on your plate. If you, if you want to know what sumptuous is, just here's a plug. Just come tonight to the... Um, uh, summer nights, and you can have a plate and put a lot on it, and I'll say, sumptuous! I hope tonight we hear a lot of that. That sure is sumptuous. you got a nice sumptuous uh, plate there. But the reality is, sumptuous means you've got an abundance. You know, there's not a lack for eating. You, you can eat as much as you want, and when you're full, you can stop and eat more later. And, and this is how he's described fine, nice clothes. He's got food, sumptuous, you know, whatever the, it is you like, he can afford to buy. You know, today he's T-bone steaks, whatever, you know, the expensive stuff. So we see, covered in fine clothes, how well he ate, and he's referred to as the rich man. The rich man. Now, I want to tell you something about this. This is a parable. It's a story. 
When you go through the Gospels, you see Jesus using parables to teach truths. Most of them are stories that he's telling. This is the one parable that's believed was rooted in a real person. And the reason that's believed is it's the only parable told where we get the name of a person, Lazarus. However, we don't get the name of the rich man. In the Greek, we could uh, extract from that, and he's been called Dives, which is a transliteration of its original, but it means rich man. He was a rich man, and I put here, uh, I'm already on the next one, how well he ate, but rich, and I put he had a gate. You're going to see that, right? Because it says Lazarus was at his gate, and that says something. You know, how many of you in here have a gate where you live? You usually don't have a gate unless you're living in a gated community, which are generally maybe middle class or higher up, or you have a gate because you have a large property. And so it's saying something about him. He was a gated man, a rich man of wealth and means. And the last thing I put here about him, and you get this, I didn't read this yet, but down later in verse 25, what is said about him is that he received good things. Because of who he was, a rich man, and, and his ability to acquire what he might want, it says he had good things in his life. Now remember, the big idea is chasm. So this is, this is the rich man. This is the first character in the story. The second character is Lazarus. And as we read through those verses about Lazarus, here are the things that were described about him. The rich man covered in fine clothes. Lazarus covered in sores. So you see how it's contrasting them and the difference between them. There's a chasm. There's a big gulf between them. They're not close in society. The strata of society in which they are walking and living, totally different. Covered in sores. Why? Does it say? Could be that he couldn't afford to have the medical attention he needed. Could be that the type of life he lived, he found himself sleeping and living in not great conditions that contributed to the sores. We don't know, except his skin was covered in sores. We also get from this how little he ate. The rich man ate well. Lazarus hardly ate. It says that he desired just crumbs from the plate of the rich man. Like a dog that would sit at the table. We have dogs in our house. Every time we have a meal, they're there. You know they're going to be there. And they sit there. We just got a puppy recently. The puppy doesn't understand. The puppy wants to come onto the table. I smell food. We've got to teach the puppy. They're going to just sit. And they're waiting. And I tell you what, if you happen to drop something... You know, it's gone, especially the puppy. You know, he's on it. You know, sometimes it's like if, if we're having something that's meat and a piece falls like that, there could be a little, you know, scuffle. You know, this was Lazarus waiting for that scrap to fall. He was a man that didn't have the same means to eat. It uses the word desired. Now, just think about it. I don't know 
what it is in your life you desire. I'm working on a degree. I want to finish the degree. I'm working on a, a promotion. I'm trying to save up for this. You have desires. Lazarus, it says his desire was for crumbs to fall down so that he could have them off the ground. So you're, you're seeing this contrast between the two, right? Now, it says that the dogs licked his sores. And I think this is a way of contrasting just the comfort, you know, that the rich man lived in comfort and everything we've said about him from his nice clothes to his home that's gated, whatever food. And when we get a glimpse of, of uh, Lazarus, it, it's not just a lacking of this or a lacking of that, but at a comfort level, I mean, you could be hungry, you could be a lot of things, but there's something about, I've got these oozing sores that are attracting dogs, and they're coming and licking them. And then, lastly, if I go to verse 25, it's, remember later in the passage, it says of, of the rich man, the type of life that he had, he got good things. And you're going to see later, the type of life that Lazarus had, it says bad things. He received bad things. What that means, some you can speculate, some we can take from what we already know. But you're seeing this great difference between them in life, a chasm of difference, not only in life, but also in death. As we read on in Luke chapter 16, verse 22, it says, the poor man died and was carried away or carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Now, I just pointed out, it's, it's telling you a difference already between the two, even in death. Notice it says of the rich man, he died and he was buried. Now that says something about his means. I mean, if we just think about the story of Christ, when Christ died, someone came and they purchased a tomb. They took the body and they, they um, the way that they embalmed it was to use spices and rub it into the body. But a man like Lazarus doesn't get that kind of treatment. And if you go back and study this time period, people like Lazarus often ended up, they would take the body outside the city. There was a great pit out there and they would toss the body into the pit and they would just decompose. Sometimes they lit uh, piles on fire to control it and get it down. And it could be said that you could see the smoke and smell the stench of the dead rotting bodies of where people like Lazarus ended up. But not the rich man. He's buried. And you see a difference between them even in death. But don't overlook something because something else, we're starting to see a bit of a transition between the two. Rich man buried doesn't say anything about an escort for him. But when I go to Lazarus, it doesn't say where his body was laid, but it says something about angels. Wherever the body was laid, but angels came and escorted him where? It says Abraham's side. Now, I read it, I remember reading C.S. Lewis who talked about this. Angels? Angels escort? us? And he said, why not? And as we've been studying in this series, we've learned about 
whenever the Bible uses the word heavens, it could mean one of three things. The, the word uranos for heaven, the context of the verse, sometimes it's just talking about the blue sky that's, that we can look up and see. Sometimes when it says heavens, it's talking about outer space. And sometimes when it says heavens, it's talking about the throne room of God, where God dwells. But I remember in that sermon, we were talking about where is heaven? And we, and we were talking about, that's a pretty big distance. If we have to travel through the blue sky, through the outer space, to where God's abode is. And C.S. Lewis says, why would we be surprised if God would send an angel to escort us to where He is. Now, it doesn't say anything about Lazarus, so I could, you can't, you, the, the flip is to go, well, the demons came and took Lazarus, right? It doesn't say that. This isn't the movie Ghost where the shadows rise up and take him away. And some of you have seen that, you know. But it does say the angels escorted Lazarus, doesn't it? Now, you're seeing this, this difference between them in life and in death, but the greatest difference between them is in eternity. The chasm in eternity. And I want to read this section. It's a little bit longer. I don't have it up there, so you can follow in your, in your Bible or just listen as I read through it. So we've seen the difference in life. We've seen the difference in death. And now in eternity, it says in verse 23, I'll back up a little bit. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted. He's comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides, all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said... Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, what I want to do first here is point out some of the differences between them in this eternal state. Lazarus, he says, is being comforted. And you're going to see this flip-flop of them, don't you? Lazarus being comforted and with Abraham. He's being tended to. Abraham. Abraham, the father of Israel. The promise of salvation to come through his seed. This is his place. Father Abraham. And he is taking care of Lazarus. Got him by his side. But now, the rich man, Dives, is different. 
And this is what I want to show you. Well, well, first, let's, let's, let me just show you the words here. Anguish. Torment. Flame. But also a place with memory. Now, see, this has been one of the questions that has come up. Well, in the next life, will we have a, a, a memory? And I, and I remember in one of our um, sermons, I demonstrated the answers yes through looking just at Jesus Christ. And I told you in that moment, there's some other places this is one. And this is one where we see they've died, they've moved on into the next life, but there's a memory. Because Lazarus is saying, I mean, uh, the rich man is saying, I've got five brothers and I don't want them here. And he has a memory of them and he's thinking about them. Now, perhaps the biggest point to be made, I'm going to go back to my picture, the Grand Canyon. Look at that distance, right? There's a point being made here because the rich man is asking for help. And the, the idea is, is, just like I said in the beginning, it's like you could be right here and you could be over there and you could see someone, you could yell out to them. Maybe there'd be an echo right here, right? But in this case, they could yell out. You could hear, please, just get a drop of water. Put it on my tongue. But he's asking for help, right? No, we can't. Well, then can you go? No, we can't. And I, what I want you to grasp, but this is why I say the big idea is about this chasm, right? There's a chasm in the difference between their lives on earth, in death, and in eternity. And in eternity, you see him asking for help. And the answer is going to come back. Can't give you help. Why? Because there's a chasm of distance. That's the answer he gives. There is a chasm of distance. And you see this. Reason number one, why I can't help you. He says, look, there is a chasm here, a great distance. It cannot be bridged. You can't go from this point to that point. Go backwards a slide. You look at that Grand Canyon. My voice could carry, but there's no way my earthly body could jump from there to there. And it's that idea I want you to grasp. Abraham is telling him, this chasm is here and it's put in place. Why? And he gives the reason why. So that people on this side will not go over to there or vice versa. It's supposed to be impassable. But that's not the only reason he gives. Because he uses this word besides. Let me go back and read it again. He says, in your lifetime... You received good, your good things. Lazarus and like men are bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides, and then he goes on, there's this gulf between us, a great chasm. The first reason he said no wasn't the chasm itself, but it was because you're in this place and you're in this place because God's fixed it that way. You got your good things in your lifetime and he had bad things, but now God's fixed it this way. In this now afterlife, 
you're getting the things that you've earned. And I've talked about this through the, through the series. In the same way that if I work and I have a boss and he says, I'm going to pay you this much per hour. And I go and I work those hours. I can come back to that boss and say, you owe me. You, I, I have a wage that I have earned. But Paul says the wages of sin is death. And there's a way in which what the Bible teaches is you earn it. And he's saying to the rich man, it's not, it's not because you were rich. You've earned it because you've broken God's laws. But the contrast that he wants you to see in the story is he had a great life. And Lazarus' life was hard. But it's such a short period of, of history. Eternity is forever. And here in this moment, he's given two reasons. No, you can't cross the chasm because it's so great. Besides, there's another reason. You're getting your, what you've earned, your due. Now, I want to pause for a second because there's an opportunity to, to talk about, there, there's a lot of theology in this. And I don't get the opportunity to sometimes cover some of these things in my sermons. I usually stick to just what's in the passage that we're looking at. And I don't want you to miss some things that are in here. So I made a slide called Explaining Abraham's Bosom. And the reason why I said bosom is because some of your translations use that word. It says the angels carried Lazarus away to Abraham's side, but some of your translations say Abraham's bosom. Now, whenever I've talked about this with kids, they're always like, he, he said bosom. Because <laughs> bosom, you know, means a woman's chest, you know, and they just, why is that in the Bible? He carried him away to what? It's like, it's not what it means here. What it means is a place of comfort beside Abraham, but it's a place. And that's what I want you to grasp. It's a place. And so where is this place? It's where all the dead went before the cross. This is an Old Testament story in essence because the cross hasn't happened yet. And that's important because when Christ dies on the cross, something's going to change. But it hasn't happened yet. In our timeline here on earth, it hasn't happened yet. And so when anyone who died, they went to this place called Abraham's bosom, and the second point I want you to see is there are three parts to it, three distinct parts that you're seeing in this. One part was where Abraham was. And in other parts of the Bible, it refers to it as paradise. But it's like Jesus, right? When he's on the cross and the criminal says, you really are the son of God. He says, today you're going to be with me in what? Paradise. It's paradise. And it's a place of comfort. Where Lazarus, the hard life, short as it is by comparison to eternity, now is in a place of comfort and blessing. Paradise. The other part, a great chasm. And the other part is known as Hades. And that is a place of torment where you're seeing the rich man. So it, it's, it's like this. It's like if we were to divide this into two plate, two, uh, three parts, everybody on this side, paradise. Sorry, guys. Sorry. You, you chose where to sit. You didn't know. Here's the chasm, okay? And then over here, Hades. 
It's one place. That's what I want you to see. One place, three parts. Now, this doesn't work because you could easily jump from that chair to that chair, you know, if you're like, I'm out of here. But in the story, the chasm is so great. You guys can't go over here. You guys can't go over there. That's the picture. Three distinct parts. It's where the dead went before the cross. Now, point number three is that Jesus descended to lead away captives. Now, I want to give you this verse. It's in Ephesians. I put it up on the screen where Paul's talking about this. He says, therefore, he, that's Christ, says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, now Paul's going to give an explanation what he means. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And Paul's given you an explanation of what happened. When Christ died on the cross, what happened? His body went into that tomb. But Paul's telling you this, what Jesus did was, and I'm going to show you, he descended he says, the lower parts, it's one place, three aspects to it. And it says he, he led, he took captivity with him. He took those who were on the paradise side, those who had faith in Christ, in what he did on that cross. Although for Old Testament saints, the faith would have been something looking forward. We believe that the promise is going to come because it hadn't happened yet. But when it happened, he came down and he says, it is finished. I did it. And he's taking them with him back to where his father is. And I want to show you this in, the, in number four. That third heaven that I've been talking about is paradise now. This comes out of 2 Corinthians 12, 1 to 3. Let me just read this one part. Paul's talking here. He says, I know a man in Christ, he's talking about himself, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Paul's the one that says third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. And so here's what you see. It's paradise where Lazarus is. But now Paul's telling you, I went up to the third heaven, and now he equates paradise and the third heaven there. Because now when we die, we don't go down to this place that I just described. If you're a believer in Christ, and that's why I'll go back to the first, first verse, which was, that I gave you today, which was, to be separate from the body is to be present with the Lord. Why? Because Christ sits at the right hand of his Father in heaven today. And paradise is there. Paradise is mostly about where Christ is, being in his presence. So we're seeing, this is an Old Testament story, but things change because he comes down and he collects this side and brings them back up to where his father is. And that, that means I'm going to change uh, or add something to the slide that I showed you earlier, a great chasm of distance. That means the distance is even greater now. 
I mean, before it was like Abraham, they could shout out to each other. Abraham, it's so, it's so hot, a drop of water, please. But now Jesus comes, whew, you're up there with God in God's abode in heaven, and there is no shouting now. I mean, and I, I, I thought in my head, I wonder what that was like. To see that, to see the, the, the vacating of that, and now they are with the Father. The distance is even greater now. But I'm, I got one more to show you on explaining Abraham's bosom. God's use of intermediaries. You know, this is where I've been leading you in the message because I said at the beginning there's a question about, and I used my mother in law's example, the body's here, she's with Christ. What does she look like? Because, Pastor Kevin, you were talking earlier that uh, in the series that our bodies, what do we look like? It's going to be the same body, but it's going to be transformed. It's going to be imperishable. It's going to be, there's going to be no sin in it, right? So what is, what are you now? Are you a, a ghost, right? Are you, and I want you to see, and partly, part of what I'm doing is, is I'm giving you this piece right now because the name of this sermon is the in-between part one. Next week, I'm going to cover something else that talks about in-between. But the first one I'm giving you today deals with what your, what your body looks like right now. Let me take you to that. And we could go to uh, 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul, uh, Paul talks about this intermediate body. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 5, he says, The human spirit does not want to be unclothed. What do you mean by that, unclothed? What he means by that is the body went there, the spirit separated. It's separate because he says to be absent from the body, there's a separation. He says the spirit does not want to be unclothed. Like if you took all your clothes off, you'd be naked. And he's saying a spirit without a body, it's like being naked. Just as an analogy there. It needs the body. And so Paul goes on to say, when our earthly tent is torn down, meaning the body you have right now, your earthly tent, it's a tent. The real you dwells within, inside the tent. And one day your tent's going to die. We're going to take that tent. We're going to put it in, put dirt over it. But the real you that dwells inside that tent separated. And look what he says. When our earthly tent is torn down, we have a building from God. And he teaches in that passage that God gives us an intermediate body until the day comes when the resurrected body will come out and we'll be united with that. And now you might say, well, what is that body like? And the best answer I can give you, because I'm going to, you know, the honest is it doesn't say. But the thought is among Bible scholars and writers is it looks just like us that the Spirit manifests in a way that the body looks like that because it's not like we're going to be up there and it's going to be, well, what are you? Who are you? I don't know. I, got, I can't recognize anybody. We've all got different bodies now. It looks the same. But there'll come a day when we're going to be reunited with that body that was buried. And I keep going back and, and saying to you, do you know why that's so important? Well, why, Pastor, can't we just keep this one? That body needs to come out of the grave because the Bible says we will be resurrected like Christ. It was the same body that went in the tomb. That is the proof of what we believe, that Jesus Christ died and rose again. The fact that the tomb is empty means that what we believe is true. And that body that came out, we learned what it's like, but it also means that death 
does not beat us because we're made alive again. Now, let me give you one other intermediate. So I'm, I'm, I want you to see this. There's a future that's going to be eternal. We're not there yet. This is kind of an in, in between this body thing. Let me give you another one. And that is, you could say that, that Hades is an intermediate as well. Because when you get to the end of the Bible, Revelation 20, it says, Death and Hades delivered up the dead in them. So you have a picture where, and I can paint it a little fuller, it's, it's the, the great white throne judgment, and men are, and women now, all mankind will give an account, and it says that death and Hades. So think about what I've just taught. There's a, there's a side that has not been emptied out yet. And it says that that side in that moment will be emptied out. In fact, there will be a resurrection of that side. And those, those, those uh, people that have been buried are going to come up and they're going to stand before God and give an account. Which means that where they're at now, so if, if somebody is not a believer and they they die, they go to a place that isn't eternity yet. In fact, John writes it this way in Revelation. He says at the end, death, Hades, they are thrown into the lake of fire. That means the eternal hell is called the lake of fire, and it is, it is not occupied with any person yet. It hasn't happened. The time hasn't come yet. But what I'm giving you is there's this intermediate. And that's important to understand these things and why they're taught. I'll tell you this. If there's, if there's an eternal heaven and it, there's an eternal hell, and that's why we teach the things that we teach. We're getting it right out of here and just laying it out how, what God gives to us. However, here's how I want to land this. I started with a picture of a great chasm, and it cannot be crossed. So I said, I'm going to give you a plane at the end. Plane, you can walk across that. I mean, it can be traversed. And my appeal at the end is to say to you, you got to walk across this. I'm going to give you three points, and I want you to hear them, and I want you to Metaphorically speaking here, you're able to come across. There's not a gulf here where it's impassable by you. You can come to what I'm talking about. Now, what is that? Number one, we need to recognize this captivation of saints. It said that Jesus came down, led away the captives. He took captivity captive is what it says. He came and he took this side and now, where are they? He took them. They're His. He paid for them with His blood. And it's important for me to say that because I don't want you to ever misconstrue an aspect of the gospel that says, there's going to be some type of judgment I have. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The work has been done on the cross he came, he took that side with him, and there's a security in it. If your name is written in that book, we started this series talking about reservations. Do you have a reservation? Is your name in the book? 
When we put our faith in the work of Christ, it goes in the book. A registration, right? And I've been using this all summer. We're traveling back for the funeral late this summer. We have a reservation on a plane. We have a reservation for a rental car. It's not that hard to understand that what we do now puts that reservation in place or not. But I want you to see the work of Christ. He came and He took captivity captive. This is why we could say death does not have victory because that place represents death. It, death has captured you, but He came down and He took that, Christ did, and it has no claim on those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And just to, to be clear, there could be someone standing here and they, they're saying, Pastor, how do you do that? Well, the Bible says you have to believe first that you need saving. One of the most common things I hear is, I'm not that bad of a person. We all are. We are all as bad as the worst murderer, Hitler. The worst you could, you're an Epstein. You say, well, I haven't done those things. It doesn't matter. The Bible teaches if you've broken one law, you've broken them all. Because the punishment is the same. You have to have perfection. You are a rebel, and you stand against God. You, you must first recognize you need salvation. How do you get it? You have to understand that Christ came. And because you're a rebel, you deserve punishment. You deserve to be captured like that. But He took it. He took the penalty so that we could be free from it. But not only did he take the penalty on the cross, they put him in the grave. He came out of that grave, and he beat death that way. And if we believe in that, the Bible says that we will have the same kind of, like he resurrected, resurrection. We will beat death that way. And I always emphasize this aspect that gets overlooked. He doesn't just pay for our sins. He comes down and he, he, he gets you and says, I'm going to make you part of my family. And he brings you back and says, I'm going to make you a son and a daughter in my family. And I've made a place for you. And I, and I, I go back to this thought. If we could think of it in terms of, of like an earthly experience, it's like somebody on death row and somebody's come and said, I'm going to take the penalty for them. But not only am I taking the penalty for them, they don't just like, oh, no, I'm free. I'm off of death row. Not only am I off, but now suddenly I'm brought into a family of royalty and given an inheritance. You go from death row to a royal family member. That's what salvation is. Why? Not because of anything you've done. Because he loved you. And I need you to see that Christ, he captured that, the security of that, and brings it to his home. Now, the other thing I need you to see is the permanence of it. And I go back to the story and the emphasis that's made in the story. I need help. And the answer back is I can't because in the word it uses, there's a, something that's fixed. 
There's a permanence in that word. There is a fixed gap here. It, it's impassable, and it's designed that way. God made it that way. There is no second chance. There is a permanence to eternity by what we do now in this life. Paul writes, he says, it's appointed unto man to die one time. There's no reincarnation. There's no second chances. After this life, you see what happens to these two. I think God gives us this, this picture to help us understand in this story. And there's a permanence to it. That's why it's so important that we think about our eternity now. And the thing as a pastor that I, I try to get at is there's so many messages out there in the world that try to teach you something different. And I just want you to, you, here's, here's the thought you could take. Christ died on the cross and there is nothing more that needs to be done for salvation except believing in that. If you think you've got to somehow earn your, by doing good things in this life, or even in the next life, somehow paying for bad things you did in some type of punishment, then that means that what Christ did on the cross wasn't enough. It means He died, plus you got to do this. And that is not what the Bible teaches. For by grace we are saved through faith, not as a result of works. And anything we do, whether it's in this life or the next life, to try to pay for the bad things we've done will fall short of His glory. In fact, Paul, the Bible says that our righteousness is like filthy rags, meaning the very best we could put before Him is still the filthiness to it. It's mixed in with so many other bad things. We could never somehow tip the scales. And that's, that's the difficulty is for you to see how great your need is for salvation. The last point I want you to think about comes in the very last verse of this story. I'm going to read it again. This is um, the rich man. He said, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Wow. First of all, he's saying, where do you find truth and salvation? Moses and the prophets. Nothing else. Moses represented the law, God's word. You go there. The prophets are the spoken word. Elijah, uh, you could go through the Old Testament, all the prophets. This is the Bible is essentially what he's saying. You get your truth here. If they, don't list, if they don't find it in here, they're not going to find it even if a person comes back from the dead to tell them. And that's why the, one of the first things I started with in this series was to say, there's a lot of people out there, more and more. I see YouTube videos. I see books. I went to heaven. I died. There was like three minutes I died. Let me tell you what I found out. There are a lot of voices that say, I'm coming back from there and listen to what I'm saying. And I find that it's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite of what he's saying. What he's saying here is you actually have more power to lead someone to salvation than someone who comes back from the dead. All you need to do is point them 
to Moses and the prophets, point them to God's Word. Somebody came to me after the first sermon, we were talking about a little bit. I said, listen, the power is in God's Word. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Just give them thoughts from here. If they bring up a point that says, well, what about this? Try to take them somewhere here. You've got to take them here. This is what leads to salvation. And I would take every book that someone has written that says, I went to the afterlife and back and throw it in the garbage can. Because there's so much in those that are definitely not true. And there's a lot in there that you go, well, that sounds true. Yeah, but it's also here. It's like you took some of what was here to validate your story, and then you added some other things in there, and that's not true. This is the same reason God says, don't put any idols before you, because an idol can never fully represent what I am. You might get one thing right, but you got something wrong. You might like, well, sure does represent love, but it doesn't represent my justice. Don't have false idols and don't have false stories. We go to God's Word to get the truth and the facts about Him and the next life. However, I, I, I would say to you, what does that mean now? How do you respond to that? Because this rich man, he was worried about his five brothers, but it was too late. Who do you know? Who are you worried about? Do you have anyone? Because it, it might come a time where it's too late. And so there's a, there's a way in which this entire lesson comes back to us and say, what are you going to do with the truth that's God, that God has given you? And last week, we looked at rewards, where we go to heaven, and the, the only judgment that we, we get is if we were good servants or not. And we get rewards, or we put things before Him, and they get blown away in fire as a, as a, as a demonstration that it had nothing to do with God. And, and one of the things that we're going to be accountable for was that you know truth, and you have an opportunity to leverage what God's given you in life to lead others to that truth. Now, typically right here in this moment, I, I pray, and I'm going to do that. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up to get ready. But as you can see, there's two tables up here, and we're going to have communion today, and we're going to do it a little bit different. Sometimes we focus on our song and then we get to the end and communion seems like it's one minute long. But what I want to remind you is that actually everything we study in the lesson is supposed to lead us into communion. And the last song is for you to prepare your heart. Because in communion, you're going before God in worship and in prayer. Why? To remember what Christ did. And as they begin to play, and I'm going to pray, I want you to do that. And during the song, when you're ready and on your own time, you can come down and get one of these little cups just like this. Come down and get one. Go back to your seat and continue to worship and sing because when the song's over, we're going to partake as the body of Christ. Well, what's the purpose of that? Well, sometimes routine, it becomes so routine 
we need to change it to remind us the importance of why we're doing what we're doing. When you come forward to get this, I want, I want you to remember communion is coming to Christ. You're coming to Christ in worship and prayer. Prepare your hearts now for that. So would you stand with me as I pray? And during the song, when you're ready, you can come forward. Father, thank you for your word, the teaching we get from it. I pray that you would lead us into the final moment of our service where we just remember what Christ did on the cross. Thank you for salvation that we have in him. I lift it up in his name. Amen.